are following the story of God. Today we're continuing with that. We've been in it since we moved into this building back in January. And um, we are going from Genesis to the end. We're looking at who God is through his word. We started with uh, before creation and who God was before creation. And then we moved into his act of creating, moved to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinned and sin entered the world through Adam and Eve. God uh, death came with that, but God also promised salvation. God promised a deliverer. God promised a seed who would come from this woman, a child who would deliver things. And then since then, for the most part, we've been following how God is fulfilling that promise through his work. Uh, she had Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel. Uh, the story moves on down to the flood, down to Abraham. Abraham Isaac has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12, son, the 12 tribes of Israel. And then God's focus kind of sits on that family of Israel. They end up in Egypt in slavery, and then God delivers them powerfully from Egypt by the uh, hand of Moses. He brings Moses in, but God does it, delivers them from Egypt, and brings them uh, into the pro- or to the promised land, but they freak out. They're afraid. They won't go in. So then they end up wandering in the desert for 40 years. At the same time when they're on the way to the promised land the first time, they stop at Mount Sinai. They meet God. They get the Ten Commandments. These are all things we've already read. But now, after 40 years, a whole generation is gone. Moses has died. The people of Israel are at the promised land, led by Joshua now. And they cross the river. And they're sitting at the foot of a massive uh, city. So today, title is God of War. And I'm going to be honest with you, it might affect or challenge the way you think of God today a little bit. But if it shakes your understanding a bit, that might be a healthy thing for your faith. If If I'm honest. What I mean by that is, are you holding on to children's stories about God? You know, are you holding on to these dreamy ideas about who you think he is? Because here's the deal. Who we think or want God to be will never determine who he is. It will never determine who he is. So then we need to seek to know him through his word rather than force his word to support who we think he is and just ignore the parts we don't like or don't sit well. That makes sense? So Joshua chapter 5, that's where we're going. Grab your Bible and flip there. Uh, sixth book of the Bible. Um, I'm going to read a few verses of chapter. If I can turn to it myself here, will be golden. You'd think I'd put a um, marker in here, but yeah, that's not my style. i got to make everybody wait while my pages stick together. Chapter 5, here we go. I'm going to read from, uh, let's see, let's start in verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped, and he said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet. For the place where you're standing is holy, and Joshua did so. Let me pray. Lord, 
Uh, I pause at this moment every time to pray because it's your word, not mine. And even as I open it and begin, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Uh, It's your word. And I am a student. I have a privilege of holding a microphone, but I sit at your feet like anybody else in the room. And we're here to hear from you, not from me. So I pray, Lord, that that you speak to all of us, me as well today, through your word, in Christ's name, amen. So uh, during World War II, I don't know if any of you know this, but during World War II, uh, Japan conquered part of the Philistines, er, the Philistines, <laughs> it's that kind of day, man, it's that the Philippines, <laughs> the Philippines, <laughs> conquered part of the Philippines. And in doing so, uh, they took about 75,000 American and Filipino soldiers captive, and they marched them all across the island to these kind of death camps that they had for them, POW camps. The march was horrible. The march was awful. Thousands died on the march. It was 60-something miles, if I remember correctly, but it was called the Bataan uh, Death March. Yeah, you can look it up and read all about it if you want. But when they got them marched all the way to the camps, things got even worse. So many died in the camps of sickness and disease that they just started executing them for the sake of it. And then as the war drug on, they just continued to execute them. Uh, but the 6th Army staged a rescue that was absolutely suicidal and has become one of the most daring raids in history of warfare. They took a group of Filipino guerrillas, and these army rangers got 35 miles behind enemy lines in order to rescue these people. They didn't have any solid information about the camp, yet they managed to break into this camp, defeat the soldiers, uh, and the army was, the Japanese army was crawling in mass numbers around this place, but they managed to get through it all, defeat the guards. Um, January 30th of 1945, They set them free. They brought out 510 prisoners of war. Many of them were so sick and so afraid that they didn't even trust them. They didn't want to leave, and they had to coerce them out or drag them out, but they rescued 510 and only two army casualties in the whole thing. It's become known as the Great Raid. It's celebrated as one of the bravest military options of all time. Um, and we hear stories like this. We get moved with, like, pride and gratitude and feelings of patriotism, maybe even an urge to clap or, like, shout or something. Um, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't. I'm not saying any of that's wrong. But what I'm saying is we forget there's a war going on. Japanese mothers lost their children, Uh, people died. And again, I'm not defending or condemning. I'm just pointing out that even in war, when there's death on all sides, we find a hero. We, We find a hero. And I'm not saying that's wrong either, but what I'm saying is when God is that hero, it shouldn't change our understanding of his character. It shouldn't suddenly make us think of him different. Instead, it should fill us with the same kind of pride 
and gratitude. So on your sheet, there's always a one line, uh, one line note, a one thing to remember on there. And I'll tell you what it is. It's no matter how impossible it may seem. If you're following God faithfully, if you're following God faithfully, if you're following God faithfully, even the highest walls can't stand between you and the promises of God. Okay? So we're going to unpack that. Go to back to Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. It says, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and he looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So, I imagine, this is just me now, I imagine it's like dusk, the sun is setting, or maybe it's even dropped, and some of the campfires in Israel are getting lit, and you're starting to have that glow, and maybe the fires in Jericho are starting to get lit, Jericho's up on the hill above, and Joshua is pacing around between the camp of Israel and Jericho, which is up above, and I'm just imagining, but he's, he's walking and he's wrestling with, how are we going to do this? The most legendary walls in all of history, massive city on a hill, which is already a problem. How are we going to get the advantage when we're below? And he's walking and he's looking down. He's like, what are we going to do? And he's praying and he looks back up and he's like, what are we going to do? And he's walking, he's probably, Lord, show us a way, show us what to do. And then, boom, God answers his prayer because the next time he looks up, there's someone standing there. And the person standing there, not right in his face, but close. I imagine about as far as Josh from me. And the person standing there is not a soldier from Jericho because he would never be foolish enough to be that close to the camp by himself. But he's also not an Israelite, and we don't know why. Maybe he didn't have the right skin tone. Maybe he's wearing a different uniform. But for whatever reason, Joshua doesn't, can't decide who you're, whose side are you on in this. And having the sword drawn is a threat. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's like if you draw a gun on somebody, is that or is that not a threat? It's the, it's the same thing. So it's not that he's just, dun, 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 it's not that kind of thing. You know, he, it is a threatening pose having that drawn. So verse 14 says, his response to Joshua saying, who are you, is no. He says, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I've come, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him, worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? That response is awesome. No. And no more clarification than that. Nope. (laughs) You know, I know I'm meddling a little bit here, but I'm just saying, God is a warrior, no doubt. But don't mistake that to mean that God is a patriotic American. I know, I know. I am. But don't mistake God to be. All right? What I mean by that is there would be times when even Israel would find themselves an enemy of God. And that's the point that God is making right here. No, it's not about you. It's not about Israel. It's not about Jericho. All right. God of war, though, I'm saying that's a pretty heavy statement. The Bible, though, is filled, filled, filled with wars and battles from start to finish. Why? 
Because there's a spiritual war that overflows into creation itself, into the spiritual realm or into the physical realm of creation where we live right now. And God is no hippie. I mean, I'm just being serious. God is not some soft old man that sits in the clouds and burps rainbows. You know, that, that's not him. And if you have that perception, I hope it's lost today. It's not true. I remember when I began studying mixed martial arts. I know Josh's family, well, several of you guys got family involved in that. Uh, when I started studying it back in the 90s, um, late 90s, I uh, had a teacher who had in his gym on one big wall, uh, Psalm 144.1. It says, blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. I love that verse now. But at the time, it kind of shook me a little bit. I was like, wow, I never realized that. But that's a great verse. And this man was obviously a believer. But who trains my, trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. That's not just talking about spiritual things. Your hands and your fingers are physical things. And this would be David crediting God for training him for the battles that he would deal with. So wait, I know, what about thou shalt not kill? That's where everybody goes. I get it. But there's a difference. There is a difference. The same God also said in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, there is a time to kill. And he says there's a time for war. He's, now that doesn't mean a season. That means not like it's seasonal and comes around. That means there's circumstances that at times will call for it. Is what he's saying. The intent of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, is malicious murder. And some translations read that way, thou shalt not murder. There's a difference. Um, Also, by the way, never forget that God, in all circumstances, is just, is just for taking life. Why? Because it's his. He made it. All creation, all life comes from him. All creation, all life comes from his breath. It's wrong for us to to take it because we didn't make it. But he did. He did. It's wrong for us to murder because we didn't give life to that person or create that person. He gave life. He gave everything that you have. All that exists that is you is from him. And if he takes it back, he's perfectly just in doing so. Um, so what stops people, I get it, and I know we're talking through a little bit of this, but, but what stops people from going to that, well, God told me that we need to go to war with blank. Well, we're a Christian nation. I'm not picking in anybody out. I'm just using the argument. We're a Christian nation and we're led by God. So we go to war over here. Well, when there's plenty of Christians saying, no, we don't. You know, how, how do we how do we respond to that? Well, in what we're looking at today, keep in mind how God tells Joshua to go to war here. If you know the story already, you know, but you're going to read it in a second and find out. It's crazy. <laughs> it's a crazy approach to warfare. But the point is, Joshua, if you trust me and you obey me, you will know that I am the one leading this through. 
It's not just a matter of Joshua saying, hey, I met a guy in the woods and he told me we should go up here and fight this city and tear him. It's, it's not like that. Um, and again, I said it before, but don't think God just picked one nation to kill all the other nations and, and whatnot. God uses multiple nations at multiple times. In fact, we'll read when we get there, but God uses other nations to come against Israel at certain points when Israel is disobedient. Uh, what about Jesus? And I'm just addressing some arguments with this, but we're going to jump back in and finish in a second. But what about Jesus? That's the big one. Yeah, he came humbly. It's a fact. Yes, he came to serve. Yes, he came to suffer. Yes, he came to die for sin. But the moment he rose from the grave, from the moment he rose from the grave, that posture is over. That, that everything changed from that moment forward, his role in the spiritual conflict now is different. The Holy Spirit indwells you. The Holy Spirit saves you. Jesus' role in all of this at present is seated by the Father. And when he stands up again to finish this, it will not be pleasant for those who don't know him. And you don't believe me? I'll read it to you. Revelation 19.11. And maybe you feel like, well, there's figurative language here. That's great. What is it painting a picture of then? Rainbows? You know, let me read it says in verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and what? Makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. If there's any doubt who we're talking about, go read John chapter 1 and you will know. It's Jesus. Verse 14. And, on, uh, and the armies, armies, military, of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, those who are rebelled against him. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name which is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. I've taught Revelation before, but I'm not unpacking all of this. I don't have to. I just want you to see the picture. And it, it might change a little bit. The way you picture the Lord to understand what I mean when we say God of war. This is the same God that Joshua is hearing from in the moment. So back in Joshua chapter 5, Joshua doesn't even question the words at all. As soon as he says no, but I'm from, I'm, he says who he is. Like, I feel like if it were me, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to need some credentials here, you know. <laughs> but you're going to need to prove it a little bit. But Joshua just immediately falls on his face and takes this ultimate position of humility. This is the leader of the forces of God. This is the leader of the armies of Israel. Millions of people. And he's falling on his face in the most humble place possible right in front of this guy. Why? Because... He's the commander of the Lord's army. He says, Josh, you might think of that as angels. Joshua thinks of that as Israel. So what Joshua is doing is Joshua is absolutely saying they're not mine. They're yours. They're not mine. They're his. How much different our battles might be if we began taking that position before God.
I feel like too often we say, we've done our homework, we've done our study, we've done our whatever, we've gone to this, we've turned to that, we've prayed over that, we've done, like, it's all about what we've done. But what if we just took that position once or twice? Lord, all I have is yours. You're in command. Have no authority. You do as you say with your slave. We got a pretty English word, servant. The word is slave. You, you do what you want with your slave. This guy here, he says, now I have come. Why now? Why did he say, now I have come? Well, it's a time for war. It's one of these moments in Ecclesiastes. It's a time for war. So who exactly is this guy? Well, some say Michael. Some say it's Michael the archangel. But read on. Verse 15, because all Joshua, all the Bible literally tells us is it's a man. But in verse 15, it says, The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet. The place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Should remind you of the man who wrestled with Jacob. It should remind you of the angel that was standing in the bush in the, that Moses saw at Mount Sinai that we know in both cases were not angels. They were God in both places. And this is the same person. What makes the place holy? The person standing there. That's the point. The person standing there. And Joshua worships. Not permitted by angels. Angels stop that. Worship God only. Not permitted to worship angels. But this person is accepting it. And Michael, the archangel, he might lead angels, but he doesn't command them. The singular commander of angels, they only have one. I'll give you a couple of verses. Isaiah 44, verse 6 says, Thus says the Lord, that's all caps, that means it's the proper name, Jehovah or Yahweh, I am. It's the proper name for God. Uh, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. That word host is military, it means armies. Lord of armies, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. It's just me. Isaiah 47, verse 4 says, Our Redeemer, the Lord, proper name of armies, is his name. He is the Holy One of Israel. So this person there clearly is God. What does he look like? We've talked about this before. I told you he's going to come up again and again and again. God is involved in his creation. He's not floating out in space waiting to see how we make it work out. He's involved. What do you look like? I don't know. Obviously like a man in some way. Uh, obviously. I don't know what that means, but I'm not going to try. It's not important. But what's important is that he was there and that in some way Joshua was very clear that he was. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Now Josh, Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. They're totally braced up for battle. Why? They have a superior advantage. They have a, what, what, are they, what, what are they so bothered about? Well, let's back up. Prior to them crossing the Jordan, Joshua sends two men over to scope or spy out Jericho. And in doing so, they're helped 
in the process and helped to escape back out of the city by a prostitute named Rahab. Now, we're not going to read all of it. We'll read some of it. So turn a couple of pages back to Joshua chapter 2. If you're in chapter 6, back up a couple of pages. You'll be in Joshua chapter 2. I'm going to pick up in verse 9. You can read all this. See, that's the cool part. If you feel like we've moved fast or we're jumping around, you have the Bible. So you can go back and read it yourself. You don't have to, we don't have to cover it all. You can read it. Look at uh, verse 9. And she, Rahab, says to these men, these couple of spies, I know that the Lord, proper name, Jehovah, God. So basically what she's saying, I know your God by name here. We could say, I know that Jesus has given you the land. And this is coming from somebody in a pagan city. And that the fear of you has fallen upon all of us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you in fear. Verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. I love that line. Like, they are freaked out because they've heard by now what's gone on with the Red Sea. One of the things I think is cool about that, side note, is that helps verify that it occurred. This pagan city, miles away, has heard and knows. And it's been 40 years, and they're still terrified. 40 years, and they're still terrified. Dried up the water of the sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and when you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. You can read about that if you go back into Numbers and Deuteronomy, we skipped over it, but they conquered two legendary kings in the desert. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For this is key, Jehovah, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. What a profound statement for this woman. Now then, please swear to me by that, by the Lord, by Jehovah, that as I've dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with me. Basically, save my, me and my family. Deliver us from death. Verse 15, then she lets them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. Verse 18 says, uh, they respond to her as they're leaving, and they say, when we, Israel, when we come into the land... You shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house, your father and your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then, if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood will be on his own head, but we'll be guiltless of that. Basically saying, though, we see the cord, we'll know it's you, we won't attack. So we'll come back to her in just a minute. Go back to Joshua chapter 6, verse 2. So while they're shut up and they're afraid because of this, the whole city is in that condition. It says in verse 2, And the Lord said, And Jehovah, this same God, said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with his kings and mighty men of valor. Still the same moment as chapter 5. Still the same exact moment. My point is that the commander who's talking here is the Lord. I have given you. It, they're, they're developing a battle plan here. If you're a military person, you understand that. They're, they're coming together to develop a battle plan. And be aware, more often than not, 
God will bring you into the battle. Victory may be certain, but the battle still has to be fought. Whatever it is in your life you're facing, you need to understand. If your faith is in Christ, if you're walking with Christ, if you're trusting in Christ, victory may be certain, but the battle still has to be fought. And he may bring you into it. All right, let's keep going. Verse 3. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Ark is not a magic weapon. It's just the presence of God among his people. Uh, On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horns, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before it. So God gives a pretty detailed plan here. (laughs) You know, this has got a lot of detail to it. The military is going to form this column. The armed soldiers are going to be in front. And then you're going to have seven Levite priests with ram's horns. Basically, uh, it says trumpets. A trumpet is a shofar. A shofar is a ram's horn. So they're going to have these ram horns. And then the ark is going to be right in the middle. And it's going to be carried by the priests, the Levites. And then the rest of the army soldiers in the rear behind that. So you can picture the column as it goes out to march around. Soldiers, seven trumpets, ark, soldiers, all the way back behind. Very structured, very organized. But I'm sure it sounded ridiculous. John, would that be a smart military strategy in in the army? You know, I'm sure it sounds absolutely ridiculous. For one, you're exposed to the city. Maybe they were at a distance, but it doesn't say that. We're not going to make a sound while we march around this place one time and then we're going back to camp and sitting down. The trumpets are going to blow continuously, but that's all. Nothing else while we go around. And then we're going to do it again and then 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 again. I imagine the army and the people of Israel, surely some of them thought it was crazy. What do you think the people in Jericho thought? Guys are bats, man. You know, and then on the seventh day, seven times around, seven priests blowing seven shofars, and then one last long blast, a shout, and the wall will fall down flat. Put that in perspective. Imagine the pyramids of Egypt falling flat in straight to the ground. It it drops straight flat. It doesn't go lean over, fall over, straight down. Like, honestly... What I picture, like it got stepped on. Um, Seven, obviously, being emphasized here. Seven in biblical terminology symbolizes completeness. You can go too far with numbers, but they do play a role. Seven is a number of completion. Seven days of creation, seven days in a week, seven notes in a octave before it repeats. God's point here is this is going to be complete, what he's going to do. And I'm sure for many people in Jericho, yeah, it seemed ridiculous. But for others, it was probably a bit frightening, intimidating. Certainly Rahab was knew that they were afraid inside, like a warning of death is here. But today, as followers of Christ, if you're in the room and you're a follower of Christ today, listen, 
we're supposed to be blowing the trumpet. We're, we're in the six days of marching, you could say. We're supposed to be going around. We're supposed to be blowing the trumpet, sharing the gospel. Even in the face of fear, ridicule, even when it seems like it doesn't make any sense. Warning of God's coming judgment. Because when his time of waiting is complete, when day seven comes, then Christ will return and the Bible says he will come at the last trumpet with the cry or the shout of the angel. It's the same picture as what's going on here. Then uh, judgment. Verse 20. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Jericho was so wicked that when God tore it down, he also cursed anybody else who would rebuild it. And in 1 Kings chapter 16, that curse Holds true when in the time of Ahab, someone does attempt to build it. It's still buried today. I know. I've seen it. I got some pictures. I'll show you. So this is standing on Jericho, facing where Jericho was, facing the Jordan River. So that would be the view if you were in the city. And the people would be camped where all of that stuff is. All those houses and all that stuff right there. They would all, millions of people camped. That's what they would be looking at from the wall. So the next, there's a couple of them here. That's Jericho now. The whole city. Uh, next one, there's one more picture. There's the top, top of a buried tower. Not the wall. The wall is flat. But a tower that was in the city that, that's buried. That, that's the top of it. Fully buried. Understand, thousands of years later, uh, God was not lying when he said what he said. So, so. What was the power that dropped the walls? What was the power between God's people and his promises? Was it the worship? Was it the surrender of of Joshua? It was faith. It was faith. And I don't have to just tell you that. We can read it. Hebrews chapter 11, you can just note it in verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled seven days. By faith. It didn't say by Joshua's faith either, by the way. It didn't say by Israel's faith. It says by the act of faith. Those things happen. What might be between you and what God's got promised for you? I don't know what he's promised in your life, but what might be between you and that? Something that seems impossible to get past. Something you feel like you cannot conquer at all. By faith. Even the walls of Jericho can't stand between what God has for you and you. But not faith like a superpower. Faith in the Lord of armies. Faith in him. Even among those within the wall, he saves the faithful. Remember Rahab? Remember where she lived? Think about that a minute. She lived in the wall. In the wall. Joshua, back in Joshua 6, verse 25, Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. 
And she's lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. She's actually in the lineage of Jesus as well. You can look at that in Matthew chapter 1. She is a direct grandmother way back to Jesus. Rahab, also saved by faith. Hebrews 11, verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she'd given a friendly welcome to the spies. Her faith is shown by her actions. Even as the walls fell flat around her, she doesn't leave the house. Remember, don't go out of the house. The wall's coming down. What kind of sin of all the places to be, the wall is the worst. She is totally testifying to her faith in God because she stays in the single most dangerous place to be. And she stays with the scarlet cord. There's a picture there of the Passover. Remember, this was very familiar to the Jews. Put paint blood of the lamb over the door, scarlet blood of the lamb over the door. Remain in the house even as death is all around you. Don't go outside. It's the same thing. They basically gave her a mini Passover. And she followed it by faith. The cross, guys, is the same. The cross is a battle. The ultimate battle, the grave, perhaps the only greater battle that God would come and he would lay himself on a cross and stay there. Enter death. And then conquer it, beat it, absolutely stomp it flat, you could say, all for you. Because you can't. I mean, can you put your faith in that today? Can you trust that today? Can, would you stay with the scarlet cord if everything else was coming down? I mean, if that's you, today's the day you tell him that. You don't need a moment. Just tell him. Lord, I'm yours. Just like Rahab, she knew who she was. I know who I am. I know I'm a failure. I know, but I trust you are who you say you are. I believe you are God. I believe you are the God of Israel, and I trust you, and I put my faith in you. Can you do that? If you can't, tell him. You don't need me to tell him. Tell him. Right now in your own words, and then come tell me. If you're facing a battle, listen, if you're facing a battle, spiritual or otherwise, if you're a believer in the room in particular, facing a battle, spiritual or otherwise, how do you know God's plan through it? Well, answer a couple of questions and I'm done. Just give you a couple of questions to answer and I'm done. Is God's word something you memorize and meditate on now? You memorize it and meditate on it now. All right, is that the case? Are you obediently following him now? That means you're repenting. That means you're baptized. That means you are uh Being discipled and making disciples or seeking to, that means you're part of a local church. You are obeying him now, even in the little things. Have you intentionally discussed it with him in prayer? Whatever it is, have you sat down intentionally and discussed it with him in prayer? Whatever the battle is. Are you willing to yield to his plan forward? So whatever his plan forward is, as crazy as it may seem, are you willing... To trust him and yield to him forward. And the last one probably is the toughest one. Are you willing to accept the outcome? What if you die? We can celebrate Joshua. Yes, they conquer Jericho. Yes, Moses died. Are you willing to accept the outcome? 
Uh, everybody stand up with me, and we're going to transition back into some music and finish up. I want to give you some time to think and sing and process. But one thing I want to bring to your attention as we get done here is God is good. All the stuff that I'm, I'm saying I've talked about may feel heavy, and I don't want you to hear a picture of God that he's frightening or scary or whatever. God is good, so good. His kingdom is good. His love is good. Uh, Ecclesiastes 3, when I said that there's a time to kill and a time of war, it also says there's a time of kill to kill and a time to heal. It says there's a time to love. It says there's a time for war and a time for peace. God is good. His kingdom is good. And his justice is good. That's what we're talking about. Let me pray. Lord, you are amazing. Thank you for your word. I pray, God, that as we uh, worship a moment longer, God, that you're glorified by our time here. Thank you for pouring out the blood of your son for us. Who never deserved it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes would not perish. But have everlasting life. Such a familiar verse and so powerful. Thank you Lord. Uh, I pray that no one leaves today without making the decisions they need to make. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.